0: to a new era of conversations with consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming, in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. And you can catch us every Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern on your favorite local EWTN affiliate You can find us on Sirius XM Satellite Radio Channel 130. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. You know, if you have been listening to Conversations with Consequences, that we try to delve deeper into some of the more interesting and philosophical issues that face our culture, but also face each of us individually, where we are encountering the world, in the places where we try to participate in the public square and find difficulties there, and sometimes not difficult sometimes wonderful experiences. But still, we like to, at Conversations with Consequences, understand exactly what we're facing and the currents of philosophy and thought which are bringing us to those intersections in our own personal lives as we go out and meet the modern moment. Um, In that light, we've uh, asked... Dr. Stephanie Barclay, who's the director of the Religious Liberty Initiative at Notre Dame University, to discuss a topic that they are discussing at the university, which is empowering women through religious liberty. So religious liberty is an important concept in the in the big world global picture but again it's also an important concept uh, for us personally uh, because it does impact the way that we are able to be faithful Catholics in the public square or not be faithful Catholics as the case may be if the public square doesn't welcome us. It turns out that strengthening religious freedom leads to opportunities and the empowerment of women. Maybe that's something that uh, parts of the modern culture would say is not true, but Dr. Stephanie Barclay is going to explain to us how that is, in fact, how it works. We will also be joined by Gladden Pappen. He is a professor at the University of Dallas and He's going to give us a preview of a St. John Paul II conference that's coming up at the university next month. The lineup includes some really heavy hitters of the Catholic intellectual movement, including Ross Douthat. The talks are going to focus on America, liberalism, and Catholicism. Wow, (laughs) what a wonderful set of topics, right? So we've asked Professor Gladden Papin to come and talk to us on his particular topic that he will be addressing at the conference, and that is, does the church still condemn liberalism? Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Gladden.
1: It's great to be here.
0: So you are taking part, uh, you're gonna be one of the presenters in a conference called America Liberalism and Catholicism, but your own particular section that you'll be talking in answers a question Does the church still condemn liberalism? That sparked my interest very much. And I wanted to have you on so we could talk about that because I think it's such a complicated topic and so many people are experiencing very, very complicated relationships with the church because they don't understand. Stand. Does their own particular parish accept liberalism? Does the church in itself accept liberalism? And it's it's a very hard on your average parishioner out there.
1: Yes, uh, it's a good question and, and a great topic. You know, in the United States, liberalism has a bit of a different meaning from what it uh, meant in the broader, you know, European and, and Western context in the 19th and, uh, and 20th centuries today. In the American political context, people tend to associate the idea of of liberalism with uh, the, the the democratic party and that's not really the the question here it's not totally unrelated but that's not the precise question liberalism as a modern political force came on the scene in the 18th and 19th centuries to found society again or anew on radical individual autonomy moral autonomy political autonomy and the exemption of from uh, ultimately of Of human beings from any higher moral order. So when we talk about the final relationship or ultimate relationship between the church and liberalism, we're talking about that movement. And the church confronted it directly in the 19th century because that movement specifically wanted to target the church as a dangerous moral and political authority. The church controlled a lot of land in the center of Italy and liberal nationalist movements in Italy in the 19th century actually ended up holding the Pope prisoner in the Vatican from 1870 to 1929, a forgotten piece of history. So when we talk about liberalism and Catholicism, ultimately, we're talking about that movement. which We see affect things more and more all around us, this movement toward radical individual autonomy.
0: If you don't mind, I want to read a little section from Cardinal Henry Newman's Biglietto speech, which he made in 1879, because I think it'll be helpful for our listeners just to ground us in what we're, we're talking about. He said in his speech, Liberalism in religion is the doctrine that there is no positive truth in religion, but that one creed is as good as another. And this is the teaching which is gaining substance and force daily. It is inconsistent with any recognition of any religion as true. It teaches that all are to be tolerated for... All are matters of opinion. Revealed religion is not a truth, but a sentiment and a taste, not an objective fact, not miraculous, and it is the right of each individual to make it say just what strikes his fancy. Does that ring uh, true to you as a definition of the brand of liberalism we're talking about in this conversation?
1: That's certainly a key aspect of it. You know, when liberals came on the scene in the the Enlightenment era, seeking to refound all of human society on this, you know, radical individual autonomy and point the politics of human society in that direction, their main obstacle was the church. The church is not simply a religious affection or or a set of religious, isolated religious beliefs, but For Catholics, when we join the church through baptism, we're joining a real society which takes care of us, providing us the spiritual means of our nourishment, but also provides us guidance and reliable teaching when it concerns those fundamental ends and purposes of, of human life. The church has been a great witness on those very subjects throughout the modern period, from Paul VI's Humanae Vitae to the Vatican's recent reaffirmation that same-sex unions can't be blessed by the Church. If you seek to overturn human society and the fundamentals of human society, you're going to come face to face with the Church as a religious and political society and institution. So, liberalism and religion, as it started to come on the scene, was intended to be the counterpart of this this um, this social and political liberalism elsewhere. You had to pry apart from people the notion that they were really a member of a, a transnational universal body and, and instead just say, look, every religion is just as good as every other one. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're a nice person. And we've reached the end point of that, which is that you know, we have religion has a has a putative place even in contemporary politics, but for many politicians and and for many people unfortunately it, it simply reduces to now to the doctrine of basically you know being nice and you know caring for the environment and things like that and the notion that it's a it's a real body that was founded by Christ as a real society that we join and which has obligations to us and we to it that's the target because that's what stands in the way of this project of, of, of universal individual autonomy.
0: It's it seems like the proponents of universal uh, individual autonomy don't have any real endpoint. They are pushing that envelope to its not just radical, but almost um, inconceivable extremes. Currently.
1: You know, I think we're living in a time where, look, 20, 30 years ago, conservatives, even Catholic conservatives in this country, thought that the large, successful American corporations were, you know, the sign of individual success. We were the country where you could pull yourself up by your bootstraps and. You know, we said some people did that, and they and they started great companies that brought uh, electricity and railroads and wonderful new technologies to us. I think a lot of people, Catholics in particular, conservatives more broadly, are starting to see that that's not any longer the case. It could it could have been the case, has been the case, but right now, ironically, this movement which started pointing in the direction of individual moral autonomy is now basically in the hands of large, these super large multinational corporations, which are aggressively pushing a radical cultural agenda mm-hmm. on all of us. You see it every time you go on online, you see it every time you load up Netflix or Spotify, or or turn on the television. What started as this movement toward radical individual autonomy has ended up just playing into the hands of very powerful oligarchic corporations, which are you know keeping us isolated from one another by advocating the you know heavy lockdowns and so forth, keeping us isolated from one another, only able to consume the ever more radical uh, and corrupting media that they that they produce. I don't mean to put too pessimistic a spin on it. There are a lot of good things that. Can come through those technologies as well, but I I just wanted to suggest that I think American conservatives and and Catholics have have started to realize that that autonomy that was promised has now delivered us into a world that's really man where everything that's presented to us is managed by Amazon, Google, Facebook, and very much what they are are pushing is at odds with with what we know is the truth about, about human nature, society, and families.
0: You know, the curators of our content couldn't be in simpatico, no, with our with the way we see the world and the way we understand the truth. Well, what we know are the truths of, of human anthropology, for instance.
1: Yes, that's true. No, it's, um, you know, as, as American industry has changed, it's no longer uh, an economy that's heavily devoted to, you know, industrial manufacturing and, you know, things that make America strong many of the people who are feeding this kind of content to us are now the ones who are you know, fresh out of college from the most most left-wing institutions where they've picked up the most current ideas in these various areas and they go straight from there into media companies and media platforms which they use to advance that agenda all across the world and really not, not simply in America but wherever those media platforms reach we're in a different situation I think that's been exa- exacerbated by the last year um, of the response to coronavirus, as people have not been able to access their churches in many circumstances. Some places, even this spring, are still under mm-hmm. a kind of lockdown elsewhere in Europe. That's another in, that's another area, I think, where this right of the church to be itself, to be a real society which makes its own decisions, uh, is becoming more obviously highlighted and, and more obviously under threat.
0: Now, I happen to be, I think you probably are too, a, a Catholic who believes that everything what, that the church is, that the church teaches is true. But I find myself, and and many other people do, I know, going into different Catholic institutions, schools or or parishes and other kinds of things, and finding that that spirit of liberalism is not just alive out there, but is very much alive inside the institution. How can we as Catholics who don't have that liberal idea that the the truth is eternally malleable and according to our, our lights, how can we be positive force when we find ourselves in these maybe tainted Catholic institutions?
1: It's a good question, and it's one that poses many challenges for the ordinary lives of Catholics and those of us who are attempting to uh, live lives in accordance with the the fullness of the truth that the Church teaches. And I think sometimes this point gets lost, but when we say the creed, we emphasize our belief in the Church as well. That doesn't mean that every, every single, you know, member or agency, shall we say, Within the church, always articulates the fullness of, of of Catholic teaching itself. But as an institution, it was founded by Christ. It is what guarantees the perpetuation of of his teaching, and that voice is still there. I think in some in in some cases, we can actually become distracted by focusing too much on on trying to follow developments all across the globe within the church, and you know, someone said this over there, someone said that over there. We need to focus on the main things that the church has taught us in modern times, you know, the sanctity of life, the importance of the family. All of the modern popes have been completely consistent on that point. And beyond that, focus in a in a clear way on, on steps that are directly in front of us. It is easy to get consumed by bad news from elsewhere where there's usually enough bad news and challenging situations directly in front of us obviously you know i've encountered all those things just as just as much as 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 anyone else has but if i had to say something about that i feel that I feel that our our spirit and judgment can be um can be dissipated when we think too much about bad things going on over there or challenges over there we can focus on our own parishes we can make decisions about the best schools to have our children in or homeschool as as my wife and and i do at the moment and uh, university institutions we're free to exercise um, our judgment about that on the university front there are strong Catholic universities University of Dallas is where I am can't let it go by without making a little plug no, for no and I want to
0: ask uh, you about our, our, that for our, sure. our
1: place uh, our place of uh, a reliable Catholic witness so yes there are always a lot of challenges in the church there's a lot of pressure on on everyone up and down in the in the church hierarchy from the from the forces that surround us but you know as someone said it's 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 the church that saves us and not, not we who save the church. So we have to cooperate with uh, what the church proposes for us and do the best that we can in, in often challenging situations in front of us.
0: My daughter is going into a school uh, for high school. After we put her in, we accepted, and she's starting in September. We've been hearing rumors that it's a Catholic school. That the administration has is becoming very liberal and is starting to inject uh, elements of critical race theory and you know a lot of climate change activism and and has completely left aside any attention to for instance, uh, John Paul II's Theology of the Body, uh, which is so important to keep you know, an, an understanding of authentic human anthropology. Presented with situations like that, where we are going into a place that we're all Catholic together, how can we be a witness for the totality of the Catholic faith, or the? Or how can we help get liberalism out the door? The, liber- the liberalism in the sense that it, everybody gets to spout their own idea of Catholicism.
1: Well, we have to pray for prudence. I certainly can't offer any particular insight on that you know, situation. Without <laughs> sure. without 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 knowing the details, there are a lot of institutions that, including schools, that you know are are Catholic in in reality or maybe just Catholic in inspiration. And we have to exercise our discretion as best as possible. Is it something? that is that something that we want to go to and participate in and make the best of and try to improve here and there where we can, or is the admixture of you know, as as you say, things that distract from the essence of uh, Catholicism too much? There are a lot now of independent um, Catholic you know classical schools out there I'm not totally expert in in all the various options but from what I understand there's been a kind of renaissance in Catholic classical schooling for the last 10 or 15 years so a lot of parents I know some who have founded these little schools um, you know have drawn their drawn their resources together and tried to make a, a, a new contribution that's not within that's not within the possibility of everyone's state in life so one has to do what one can as, as prudently as possible. Uh,
0: and Gladden, I do want to ask you about the University of Dallas. The University of Dallas recently stood up for, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, because I might have my facts not entirely right, a professor was threatened with being canceled, and the university stood up for him wholeheartedly. Is that the kind, of, uh, the kind of thing that universities should follow in general?
1: Absolutely, it is. That's actually, you're referencing a story from the chairman of my own department, David Upham, who made a post on Facebook concerning someone that, uh, President Biden had appointed to be an assistant health secretary, someone who had undergone a transgender operation of, of some sort. And my colleague, Professor Upham, took the opportunity to restate the fullness of the church's teaching uh, about the understanding that God created man and woman, and man and woman, he created them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, he was attacked by some people outside of uh, the university who demanded his head on a platter, scalp. in effect, and <laughs> yeah. de- 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 demanded his scalp and Unfortunately, we do live in a time where a lot of universities would have responded to this simply by saying, they, either by censuring uh, a professor who said such a thing, or by saying it best, well, you know, everyone's entitled to their own views, and he didn't express it very well. But, well, the University of Dallas is um, a proudly Catholic institution, and, um, you know, stood up not only for Professor Optum's right to his views and to express them on, on outlets like Facebook, but also reaffirmed that the university will confidently continue to affirm Catholic teaching regarding human nature and, and the dignity of men and women, while also providing an educational context which is uh, driven by charity. So it's, this is not a not a hothouse institution of any sort. It's a, it's a place where everyone can come and avail themselves of a, of a robust Catholic education which aims to prepare people for participating successfully in an often hostile world.
0: Wouldn't it be wonderful if other universities followed suit?
1: I think if other universities Universities followed suit, particularly in the in the Catholic world, that they would actually be more successful. You know, we're again living in a time where Catholic parents are looking around at the options that are available to them, and you know, many Catholic parents who would have sent their children to an, a state school or maybe even a, maybe even a secular Ivy League school or something like that some years ago are we starting to think twice about whether 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 it's worth it. So people are looking around for you no know, robust but excellent Catholic options, and I think that's that's a people talk a lot about the decline of higher education, but I'm very bullish on the possibility uh, for continued growth in the in the sector of faithful Catholic education. I think universities like University of Dallas were not the only one, but uh, are going to lead the way in that. And hopefully we'll see uh, step-by-step increased pressure brought to bear by faithful Catholic parents on other larger Catholic universities to maintain their, their Catholic mission.
0: You know, we started out by talking about liberalism and, and how it's the the expression of, of uh, unbridled license and individual autonomy, and I was thinking of poor Professor Upham, who was just being an individual when he was posting, and liberalism turned around and, and you know, refused him, <laughs> his, his individualism. Um, how, how does that square with the idea of liberalism, that at, on the one hand, we're all, we all have the Freedom to express ourselves fully, and at the same time, certain expressions are completely verboten.
1: Yeah, we really don't have that you know, liberty of individual autonomy. That was really just the kind of false promise that liberalism offered, because it's a uh, it, it, you know that that advertisement appealed to the natural human spirit of rebellion. And what happened in the end is that liberalism took that spirit of rebellion and institutionalized it, and in large large social institutions like large corporations, in you know a lot of parts of higher education and academia uh, and even parts of our you know state apparatus itself so you know as Adrian Vermeule pointed out a few years ago in an article and first things it's essentially become a kind of substitute religion mm-hmm. where the goal of the religion is preaching to people that that their happiness is going to be found in you know continual furtherance of their individual autonomy it's just that it's uh, it that that advertisement i think people realize now is in fact a sham it's not liberation is only really done once we had liberation once and for all in the 60s and and now people are just trying to kind of pathetically recreate that in in their own lives and and now more and more through the experience of these um of consumer products which are pitched to them as you know being essential to their further liberation so yeah it is ironic that um that that very thing which liberalism promised is is actually being denied to to Catholics in the public square. And I think the fact which explains that, or the truth which explains that, is that it w- that this individual autonomy was was always, and from the beginning, a kind of advertisement in place, put in place to to seize power and build a kind of alternate religion, um, which would continually enact itself through these you know rituals of liberation. Its the trouble is that you can't design. A functional society on that basis, and look around the world at other major successful powers—China, for example, uh, Russia, others. Those are countries that have that have been through a lot, and they certainly, when they look over at our further extremes of social liberation. See something that they know they don't want. So we should learn to to look at ourselves from the outside too, and hopefully use that as as inspiration for revitalizing our society culturally, uh, religiously, and politically.
0: And why do you think, Gladin, that when when the the modern culture pushes this intense freedom of of expression, it's always it seems to only hold for sexual matters.
1: Yes, isn't that funny? No, it is. It is the case that um, radical freedom of expression is essentially now now means that we've created a society which is a wash in obscenity and and pornography and well many people have said that more broadly we live now in a kind of addiction economy so in, instead of seeing pornography and and drugs as you know, isolated parts of our economy that people use but don't talk about we should actually see them as archetypal. Those, 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 those industries are, you know, violent, aggressive, take advantage of legal loopholes, uh, and addict people to things that they can't escape from and that degrade them. Well, the same is true, you know, with the with the terms changed a little bit uh, for Google, Amazon, Facebook, you know, Twitter, Apple, uh, Netflix. I mean, they're all they're all essentially doing the same thing. They research us, they study our habits, they find our weaknesses, and they try to exploit that in order to keep us on their platforms you know you can go into facebook's uh, classifications of you uh, if you happen to be a member and and look at all look at all the terms that it's used to identify your behavior facebook knows better than you do when you're likely to make a purchase and it'll make sure to feed you an advertisement right at that time you know an advertisement carefully designed to appeal to your weaknesses and not to you know, positively share something as, as a part of strength and, and getting better. So it's better to view all those things as being kind of on a continuum. And frankly, you know, as even ordinary culture, ordinary advertisements, uh, ordinary sports or ordinary television, everyone can see that that's becoming more and more pornographic and in, and in your face. So it really is more and more like a continuum. But why why is that the case? Because it's easier to dominate people through vice.
0: Well, that's that's very deep and a little bit a little bit dark. But it makes a lot of sense. It does it does correlate with what I've been seeing, and and I've noticed that everything has accelerated during the lockdowns because of people's isolation, as you mentioned earlier.
1: Exactly, that's true. I mean, this is this is kind of a, a bad and a good statistic in some ways. I, but I, I saw a statistic the other day that you know the number of um, people reporting to have had sexual relations by age thirty uh, has fallen dramatically over the last. Uh, uh, Ten or fifteen years or so, and of course, in one circumstance, well, you know that would be good if that's because they're you know waiting in, uh, until marriage. But the truth is that people are becoming more lonely, uh, more isolated, and uh, more addicted, and obviously finding those finding the satisfaction of of that area of of, of desires through other means. So, I mean, the only the the only good thing is that um, as 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 the culture does become darker in that way, it it does heighten the need uh for a response to it. I mean, I think when mass was taken away from people uh, early last spring and last summer, and still today, even in other parts of the world, for a lot of people that, you know, showed them how much they uh, showed us, me certainly, how much we we depend on that, and uh, and not the other way around. So, although the culture is is dark, it's also a, a, a time of retrenchment for, for Catholics. We can see more easily now that this, you know, liberal political and social system which was put in place uh, doesn't have our interests in mind and is fully willing to shut the door on our churches and attempt to throw away the key. So, although it is a difficult point, the only way out is through, and that will require understanding the church on its own terms, faithfully believing in it, and trying to serve it in our daily lives.
0: Oh Well, Professor, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Um, I hope that you will join us uh, sometime soon again. Uh, I think that you're a fountain of wisdom, and we'd really (laughs) like to take advantage of that. Where can our listeners take part, or I mean, listen in to the conference?
1: Well, the conference is coming up on April 15th and 16th. That's Thursday and Friday, uh, a couple weeks after Easter. This is the America Liberalism and Catholicism Conference at the University of Dallas. So you can go to udallas.edu and then click on uh, attend an event in the upper right hand corner and uh, scroll down a bit and you will find the information about the America Liberalism and Catholicism Conference closer to the date. The live streaming information will be posted there and uh, check it out again udallas.edu Hi,
0: well thank you very much. I'll certainly be listening in and I'm sure many of our listeners will too. So thank you.
1: Great, thank
2: you.
0: Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm delighted to have Notre Dame law professor Stephanie Barclay. She's also the director of the Religious Liberty Initiative at Notre Dame University. Welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thanks so much for having me on. Stephanie, you have an impressive resume in light of religious liberty, and this is a very important issue to us at the Catholic Association, and I think, of course, to all Catholics, really, and every person of any faith. Um, and you are hosting an event discussing how religious liberty empowers women. Now, in, in, my, in my intro earlier, I mentioned that if, if you asked uh, regular secular people or modern, modern people, even with religion, they might say, well, no, re- religions keep women down. But you're making a very different point that religion actually empowers women. And how are you going about that? How, how does religion empower women?
3: So thank you for your interest in this important topic. It's it's exciting to get to be part of what Notre Dame is doing with its Religious Liberty Initiative focused on this issue. We're going to be talking about at this event, ways in which um, women, when they are able to have their religious rights protected, are able to be more full participants in society. and They're able to receive a lot of opportunities and benefits from religious groups that, that provide services that are important for women. Um, we're going to talk about ways in which religious liberty are important to women's identity and their heritage and their ability to live authentically. We'll also talk about ways in which when religious liberty is denied, that can have real disproportionate impacts on women, uh, including groups and religious minorities that are just being overlooked by the government. Uh, With our group of panelists, who I'm happy to speak about, we're going to be talking about this important issue from the perspectives of a range of different faith communities, including Muslim, Jewish, Catholic, and um, different Native American groups. And so I'm really excited to, to highlight ways in which the important principle that you talked about of religious liberty isn't at odds with rights of women or empowerment of women. They, there's a powerful synergy there that I think we do well to recognize.
0: When okay, when you're you're telling me about this, I'm thinking, okay, so in a in a society that values the l- rights of conscience, including the rights, the right of people, women and men to to worship God as they see fit, these are also the same societies that um, respect other fundamental liberties uh, that that in turn empower and and liberate women to 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 flourish. Is that correct?
3: That's a great point. Yeah. I and mean, the religious liberty, often sort of operates as a canary in the mine shaft, gauging the type of um, encroachments that government might make be making into lots of different types of, of freedoms and individual liberties that are really important for women and men.
0: You know, these days we, we're seeing that some people's individual liberties are being uh, privileged over other people's. And I'll just say one one example the The individual liberty of of a man who of a boy, maybe who a young man who wants to present as as a woman, his individual liberty to do so and to participate in sports, uh, infringes on the liberty of uh, of a girl or a woman to participate in a sport uh, in a fair way in which she has some opportunity of of actually winning or placing in the race or in the competition. How does lifting religious liberty uh, into the spotlight help situations like this?
3: Yeah, that's an issue that's getting a lot of discussion right now. But this idea of, of rights being in conflict with each other isn't limited to that space. I mean, in France, when when the country there imposed a, a burqa ban to, to prevent Muslim women from being able to wear their burqas in public. It was a similar sort of argument that they were making, that um, they had to protect the rights of other people to you know, not have to see what they viewed as offensive burqas and the rights of people to get along. And so when government takes away religious rights from people, it, it often frames them in terms of these sorts of conflicts. And um, And one thing that I think is an important piece of this discussion is the fact that, these conflicts sometimes are unnecessary. I mean, we, we don't have to have this conflict. We don't have to impose, um, you know, these government regulations in a way that, that would take away from religious liberty rights. One Another example that we'll talk about with Mona Palaka, who's the president of the International Council of 13 Indigenous Grandmothers, is ways in which uh, government sometimes has pitted rights of indigenous peoples to worship against other sorts of interests like mining interests or construction interests. And often there are actually ways government can accomplish goals and still protect sacred sites and let women perform rituals at those sites like the sunrise ceremony. So um, I agree with you, this is an important theme and I think it's a transcendent theme that comes up in a lot of different contexts.
0: Well, so that's interesting. You're saying that when sometimes we perceive these uh, different forces as being in opposition to each other, but that they can run in parallel streams.
3: That's right. Yeah, I think so. Uh, So for example, one area that has been discussed a lot about you know, in, impinging on rights for women with religious liberty is the context of the contraceptive mandate. And, but one thing that we saw government officials doing after some of that litigation is working to find ways to both increase access for contraception with new Title 10 regulations, but also make sure that they weren't forcing other women like the Little Sisters of the Poor to violate their conscience and what it means to them to be able to perform their work with dignity and authenticity by By being the ones to provide it, when they have that objection, we can do both things. And I think we have a better, more peaceful, pluralistic society when we try to find ways to avoid unnecessarily conflicts and to to optimize protection of rights for for all interested parties.
0: And does your conference focus more on domestic issues or international issues?
3: We're going to be talking um, about both. So one thing I'll, I'll discuss with Rachel Benaim, she's a reporter with Flood Trends, who, who will be speaking to us. We're going to talk about some of the, the recent COVID restrictions and the impact that that had in the United States on Orthodox Jewish communities. And so, for example, New York put in place a restriction that said only 10 people could gather for worship services it was just a a blank band, regardless of the size of the building. Um, But what New York probably didn't think about or didn't anticipate is that in Orthodox Jewish communities, it takes 10 men to form a minion, and you have (laughs) to have a minion in order to worship. And so what New York was effectively doing was saying, you Orthodox Jewish women can't worship at all. And it's, it's an example of how when there are onerous religious liberty restrictions, often they can have disproportionate impacts on women that that um, we need to be more mindful of. Oh, so why? So ten, it would
0: have to be ten women would make the minion, but then they would have to have a rabbi, would make which would make eleven.
3: Well, they would have to have ten ten men to form a minion. Um, And And so so for the women to
0: add on, they would be, they would be extra, they would be sitting apart.
3: Exactly, exactly. If if a woman came, she would be 11. She would be 11. Ah, You can only have 10. And so so women effectively couldn't worship under that new restriction.
0: Wow. So that was inadvertent, you think? (laughs) Or not? I mean, I hope I hope so. I hope that they didn't sit down and think, how can
3: we keep Orthodox Jewish women from worshiping? Well,
0: it just, um, you know, I, I was only watching that on the news like other people, but it seemed to me that in, in the state of New York and New York City, there was uh, some sort of animus against uh, Orthodox Jews. It seemed to me.
3: Uh, there, in well, particular. I mean, there definitely were statements that um, the governor was making and other officials were making that were targeting the Orthodox Jewish community. Like they, they held up a sign of a jewish funeral and or a picture of a jewish funeral on a slide and said this is the problem we're trying to solve um but there was just a problem their photo was a decade old there had just been some staffer who had googled you know jewish funeral and found a picture to put up and that's that's one of the reasons why i think it's really important that government is acting in even-handed ways um because otherwise when policies are really arbitrary and really restrictive it it leaves room for things like that to happen that i think are really troubling in a pluralistic society
0: if you're just tuning in you're listening to conversations with consequences on ewtn radio i'm your hostess dr gracie christie and i'm talking to professor stephanie barclay of notre dame law school discussing the impact of religious freedom on the empowerment of women What I worry about is that our society is pluralistic, but that so many people are becoming completely dissociated from the idea of what religion is, what it demands of us, religious people, and how important it is to keep... Um, religious uh, people in the public square because of the the virtues that they bring to the public square the way that they they enhance the public square
3: yeah this is a really interesting trend that you're honing in on a Pew has talked about how the rise of the nuns meaning people who mm-hmm. don't af- don't affiliate with any religious group i think that you're also right that if anything this just emphasizes the need to make sure that our laws and our culture are such that that we allow women to be able to exercise their religion and be prominent participants in our public square and that we don't force them to choose. And so like, for example, with the, the burqa bans in France, the result of banning Muslim women from wearing their burqas in public didn't, and their headscarves in public didn't mean that they were going to give up their religious identity. It meant that we were banishing these women to the fringes of society in ways that were really devastating and problematic for these women. And I think The lesson we can draw there is a question we can ask elsewhere. How are are we pushing other religious people to the margins? Are are there ways both legally and culturally that we can make more space to have a chorus of voices and perspectives and faith traditions that are all a really active part of our society and our public square? And
0: so what are the solutions to this problem? Here domestically, I I think I'm focusing right now, but um, besides... uh, growing awareness of the of the important role of, of religion in the empowerment of women what what can we do what do you think we can do to to promote this
3: yeah it's, it's a it's such an important question one that i'm maybe excited to hear what some of our panelists say about this and um, i think one thing is more women of different faith communities can advocate on behalf of each other and um, and not just, you know, not just for women of faith, but as Kathleen Porter McGee will talk about, she's the superintendent of Partnership Schools. When we protect religious liberty, that has spillover effects um, and other beneficial consequences for vulnerable groups. Her schools serve kids uh, in inner cities where there's not a lot of opportunity, and they're doing a lot to lift kids out of difficult situations and and give them the chance to have a really quality education. But that. It's harder to do that when we don't protect religious liberty for groups like that that want to do that work and serve vulnerable populations. I think another thing that is important as a legal matter is to require government to actually demonstrate that w- when it is burdening religious liberty, it has a good justification for doing so. And you know, one thing I'll, I'll talk about with Mona Palaka is with some of these Native American sacred site cases, the government really easily could find other ways to, to protect the sacred site and still do things like widen a highway and and so forcing the government to answer why it won't I think is important for maximizing religious liberty in a way that benefits all of us and including these women of faith
0: I'm afraid uh, Stephanie that the new administration is not a friend of faith religious liberty I'm thinking about it from one perspective that always interests me very much I'm a woman I'm a doctor I know a lot of female physicians who've had to abandon their practices, for instance, in endocrinology in pediatrics be- mm. because of things that they were expected to do, ways that they were expected to participate if they wanted to to keep, to be employed. So for instance, I know a woman endocrinologist who retired rather early against her will because uh, she was working for a big university hospital and uh, every child that came through the practice, with gender dysphoria was immediately referred to for hormone blocking that the endocrinologist has to do, mm-hmm. blocking and, you know, then other uh, opposite sex hormones. I, I worry that the new, that there's a lot of tendencies now that are going to be potentiated by the new administration that will result in this lack uh, in, in, in the opposite of empowering women, women of faith.
3: So I think that it is important to be, you know, re- realistic about the fact that there are certainly threats to religious liberty, both at home and abroad, that we, we need to be mindful of. Um, and I think your concern highlights reasons why it's important to continue to do the work and to raise awareness about the fact that religious liberty shouldn't be a political issue. This, this mm. should be something that exactly. is inherent in what it means to be human and what it means to have dignity, and it should be something that people on both sides of the aisle are, are more willing to support. I mean, the, the government... We had sponsors who were both Democrats and Republicans who in 1993 came together and unified about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And I agree with you, we see a lot of polarization right now and that, that didn't exist before. And so thinking about how do, we, how do we try to shift the tide back to a place where religious liberty was less polarized is such a critical question for our time. I, I mean, I think one piece of it is we have to be willing to speak up for each other. We have to be willing to speak up on issues for other faith groups that may not align with us perfectly politically so that we can we can show we mean it when we say that religious liberty is more important than partisan politics, that this is an enduring principle. But that's something I'm gonna be really interested and in, excited to hear what our panelists have to say, is, is how do we try and reduce some of that partisanship and, and help make this principle more accepted in a way that is going to continue to be more empowering for women.
0: No, now Notre Dame is a is a Catholic university with a with a huge footprint. Now in the American imagination, I think. And
3: I think that's right. So thank you. I appreciate
1: that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> my son is going to visit soon because he's seventeen, and and I, I hope he likes oh, it. Oh great! He and his that's father, terrific. he and my husband are going to go do one of those little college trips. So I hear it's very oh, beautiful. Fantastic! Uh, I hope he likes it. But I want I, It seems to me that a university like Notre Dame is exactly the kind of place that that should hold a conference like this and. And is and has that that you know that cultural weight that that can promote these issues in, in, the, mm-hmm. in the greater community
3: that is one of the major goals of our religious liberty initiatives that we're launching here at the Notre Dame Law School is is to send that signal and to put our resources and you know our time and focus behind that principle and so already this year we've had the opportunity to defend Muslims and and um, Apache people in Arizona and evangelicals. And of course, Catholics are part of the mix too. And it's um, we're, we're in dialogue with a number of different groups about how to promote religious liberty on, on both sides of the spectrum. And that's been really rewarding for us to, to get to have, you know, we're a Catholic institution, but we're a Catholic institution that is guided by these principles of dignitas Humanae. And it um, is important to us to defend religious freedom for everyone, and I think that uh, there was this article that came out when we um, were defending the sacred site at Oak Flat that talked about uh, you know a funny statement that we have a Mormon director at a Catholic institution representing Muslim groups defending Orthodox Jews. God bless America. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I I loved that quote in this article because um, that's that's what this is about. That's what it means to have a nation where. We're not necessarily united by common language or ancestry or culture or faith or identity, but we are united by these enduring principles, these constitutional principles that um, everyone's freedom matters. It's not just the freedom of the popular or the powerful. And that means we need to be willing to advocate for people of all different faith communities.
0: You know, that is such a beautiful thing about America, about our country, Uh, the pluralism that's built into it and that all of us benefit from. It is Mm -hmm. really it is really a lovely thing to to build on that and not to fall into. I think that we're in a very dangerous spot right now as a country that we're falling into groups and being pushed to uh, be aggressive against each other. Or, or, you know, some of us are being told we're victims, other ones, other other. I, I really hate that. And I love that you know what you're promoting is that beautiful idea of american pluralism which is the only thing that can unite and that can help everyone flourish.
3: Well thank you and you're right i think we are at an important moment where tribalism is threatening to pull us apart as a country and and i just think we can't let that happen we have to find our our shared um, belonging and things that we, we can advocate for each other about and, and decrease the partisan But thank you. I appreciate your, your very kind words.
0: <laughs> and how can other people listen in on the conference? Or Is this a, a private conference? How does this work?
3: Absolutely. They can go find a link to the event. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. It's, and our handle is IndyLawRLI. You can also pull up our, our Facebook page uh, or email me or my assistant, Sarah Joyce Baker, and we'll send you the registration link. It's it's open to the public. We'd love for as many people to join this conversation as possible. And there will be a chance for Q&A and audience involvement um, after some opening remarks by our panelists.
0: Oh, well, it sounds wonderful. I will definitely be uh, online listening. And uh, for those uh, listeners who can't make it, I, th- I believe you're going to be saving the video for later That's watching right. on demand. That's right. Okay, and for more information on that, you can visit law.nd.edu and check the events page. Uh, Professor Barkley, it's been a real pleasure to have you on today.
3: Thank you, Gracie. It's so good to be on, and thank you for focusing on these important conversations. I really appreciate it.
0: Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's
2: Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege to have a chance to ponder with you the concept Sequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us tomorrow on Palm Sunday throughout this upcoming week that the church calls holy. It's holy first because of all Jesus did during these days from the triumphal entry into his city, to his teaching in the temple, to the Last Supper, to his prayer in Gethsemane, to his arrest, torture, crucifixion, preaching, and death on Good Friday, to his rest in the tomb and his glorious resurrection on the third day. It's also called holy because it's meant to make you and me holy. If we live this week the right way, if we enter into the mysteries we celebrate, if we internalize all Jesus won for us during these most holy of days, if we, in short, enter into a conversation with Jesus, not just with thoughts or words, but with our whole life. Holy Week is supposed to be our most faith-filled week of the year, but that requires our choosing to make it the most faith-filled week of the year. Last year, that choice was somewhat taken out of our hands by civil and church leaders, prevented us from going to church out of fear of COVID-19, leaving us to do the best we could watching the liturgies virtually or other means. This year, we have a chance to make up for that year lost with even greater appreciation and love for the gift Holy Week is. We begin Holy Week tomorrow on Palm Sunday, and in the Gospel at the beginning of Mass, in the reading of Saint Mark's Passion, we see six different ways we're called to respond to Jesus with faith, so that through the mysteries of this week he may fulfil his desire to make us holy. First thing we learn is how to welcome Jesus. The crowds laid their cloaks on the ground, lifted palm branches, and exclaimed, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Their attitude attitude shows us the type of exhilaration we should have to welcome Jesus this Holy Week. It also shows how we're supposed to lay down our life before the Lord who comes in the name of his Father. The second thing we learn is how to value Jesus appropriately. At the beginning of the Passion account, there's a huge contrast between Mary of Bethany who anoints Jesus' feet with more than a year's worth of genuine aromatic spikenard, she did so because she loved Jesus. She valued him more than a full year's salary. Judas complained, saying that the perfumed oil could have been sold for 300 days' wages and the money given to the poor. But Judas, moments later, we know, went out to ask the chief priests what they would pay him to betray Jesus into their hands. They gave him 30 pieces of silver. The question for us is, is there any price for which we'd betray Jesus? Would we sell him for a million? Would we sell him for a trillion Would we sell him if the devil were to promise us, as he promised Jesus mendaciously in the desert, all the kingdoms of the world? If we're going to live holy week and life the way God wants, we need to commit ourselves never to sell Jesus out. That's why the early church had a refrain, better to die than to sin, that there'd be no price for which would ever sell Jesus out. The third thing we learn is about Preparation. Jesus sent two of his disciples with meticulous instructions to prepare the Last Supper concerning finding and following a man carrying a water jar where normally only the women would carry the water, then asking the master of the house where this man carrying the water went where Jesus would celebrate the Passover with his disciples. That's precisely what they did. What type of preparations are we going to make? Are we going to be ready? Are we going to show up to the upper room with Jesus for the celebration he eagerly desires to have with us as he prepares to change bread and wine into his body and blood? We need to be prepared and make preparations. The fourth lesson Jesus teaches is how important it is to stay awake with him in prayer. Jesus asked Peter, James, and John to stay awake with him and pray in the garden, reminding us that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The apostles in Gethsemane fell asleep, however, we see how soon they abandon Jesus despite their love of him. Jesus wants us to stay close to him in prayer, to grow in greater intimacy with his suffering, especially through the sacred triduum of Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday. That's the way our flesh is strengthened. Are we prepared to pray? The fifth thing the readings teach us is about the dramatic choice we're called to make. Pilate asks... Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? But the chief priest stirred the mob to ask, rather, for Barabbas. Then Pilate retorted, What do you want me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And to Pilate's astonishment, the mob cried out repeatedly, Crucify him. For us, we have to answer the question, Do we want Jesus as our king? Or do we want some substituted Barabbas? Choosing Jesus on the most momentous occasions comes from choosing Jesus repeatedly and faithfully in small decisions. Choosing to pray, for example. Choosing to receive His forgiveness. Choosing to share that forgiveness. Choosing to love Him in our neighbor. Choosing to ponder His words in the Holy Bible rather than spending our time watching or reading the news or March Madness. Choosing to make Him in the Eucharist the source and summit of our life. The sixth thing the readings teach us this to live Holy Week well is our need to help Jesus carry his cross. The Roman soldiers pressed Simon, a Cyrenian, to help Jesus carry his cross. Jesus himself chooses us to do so, saying that we can't be his disciples unless we deny ourselves, pick up our cross each day and follow him. That's a condition for the entire year. Especially in Holy Week, however, it's a particularly pressing summons. Jesus wants us to be co-redeemers with him, to make up what is lacking in his sufferings for the sake of the salvation of the world. This week is a week in which we help Jesus carry his cross, by helping others carry theirs, by visiting and consoling the sick, especially those who are suffering. The more we help others, the closer we will be to Christ to welcome Jesus, to value Him appropriately, to prepare to enter the mysteries with Him, to accompany Him in prayer, to choose Him over every Barabbas, and to help Him carry His redeeming cross. These are the means by which we will live with faith this most important week of the year. This is the pathway by which Jesus will make us holy during the special week of sanctification. Let's pray for each other to live this holy week as it deserves to be lived